Hello, and welcome to Working Girls, a podcast celebrating historical women, past and present, by telling their stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because history should make us uncomfortable, not complacent. I'm Nikki, resident historian, dog mom, and full-time RVer. Hi, and I'm Dina. I'm a log for the ride, but not in the RV. I'm the mom of two daughters, a son, and a terror of a dog. I'm a working girl that's a certified master of career service and a lifelong friend to Nikki. Hi, Dina. Hi, Nikki. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I am okay. We're finally in the same time zone for a little bit. Which is amazing. I know. It kind of makes getting together a little bit easier because we're not trying to add and subtract time to figure out who's where and, you know. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Although I'm not excited about the location I'm in, but it's temporary, so that's okay. You have to remind me where you're at now because I cannot keep track. I'm close to home now. I'm about an hour away from home, Um, which it's, I just don't want to be here. (laughs) I want to be somewhere else, but that's okay. Uh, We actually got, I think it's good news that the project that my partner's on um, is not going to be as long as we thought. So hopefully we will be able to be somewhere else before winter because that's kind of a scary thought for me right now. But anyway, Nikki, Nikki's not a true fan of the winter. Neither am I, I, but she is a lot farther north than I am. I I do not enjoy snow. I do not enjoy cold and living in an RV. um, It's very, very, very cold. (laughs) Um, Even when we were in Washington state, we had a couple of nights that were, we had a few nights that were below freezing and it was, um, it was a challenge to stay warm because we have we have a heat we have heat uh, but we're on propane so if you turn the heat on you're blowing through tons of propane so you have to be mindful of that and so we had space heaters and then you worry is the space heater going to get too hot you know it's it's a mess so if we can be somewhere warm I will be happy. <laughs> so, uh, anytime I can anyway. be somewhere warm, especially if there happens to be an ocean outside and yes. some waves crashing, I can be extremely happy. We are beach girls at heart, that's for sure. Amen. For hey, sure. there's an article out there. Just take a moment when you get a chance to look it up. It's called The Blue Mind, or it talks about the blue mind and why the ocean actually has a physical and mental uh, reaction on your mind. I sent it to my sister because we're both, of course, uh, ocean well, lovers. That was on Facebook. That's the one I posted on Facebook for I my sister. So you'll have to read that. The, the blue mind and how it affects yeah. you. But succeed. Like, there is a legitimate medical reason, mental reason, that I need to live near an ocean. I I support this 100%. <laughs> so let's get your husband on board. <laughs> oh, he's on board. No problem there. Oh, perfect. <laughs> That's good news. Um, so, uh, so this is our second episode of our podcast. And um, let me tell you how the universe was against us uh, recording this. <laughs> we tried, I, I don't know, five or six times, I think, to get together. And we had technical difficulties. We had scheduling conflicts. My partner and I were traveling. And finally, here we are. <laughs> yes. So it was an adventure, but I'm glad we got there. <laughs> um, yes. Definitely learned not on a Friday night. 
don't don't Ugh. try to podcast on a Friday night, especially on a free forum. Everybody's no. trying to podcast on a Friday night. Yes, yes. So yeah, <laughs> this it's hey, we're we're still learning. We're still new at this. It's uh, <laughs> it is an adventure, and uh, but it's fun, and I'm glad that I get to do this with you. Me too. So um, so today's episode, it, we when we first you know when we talk about topics. We were, we thought, you know, oh, this is a good one. Um, we'll do this episode. And then I started researching and I said, Dina, this is going to be a multi-part episode because <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> so, uh, so what we're going to talk about is women in war. And with that, I am going to give our listeners if we have any listeners, but anybody out there that's listening, this is a trigger warning for you because there, we are going to talk about violence and there is going to be some mention of sexual assault. Um, and so we don't want to, we don't want to surprise anybody with this content today. We don't want to upset anybody with our content today. So if this is not something that uh, is easy for you to listen to, we're not going to be upset if you don't. So, um, so with that said, like we, we decided we wanted to talk about this topic because, um, Dina's youngest, um, got her, is it her commission? Is that she did. the right she, way to say it? Yep. She commissioned into the air force and she just left actually last week for her first assignment. So she is in the lovely bright state of California now. And, wow. you know, of course, I come from a military family, so this is not unusual. Mm -hmm. And she comes from a military family. So this was a, a subject that made sense, and it was near and dear. So I'm excited. And it's been interesting reading some of this stuff. Like, I was fascinated and curious to see how many episodes it takes us to get until we get to modern day, especially Oof. just watching 2020 last night and they had the um female service members from ukraine that were prisoners of war uh wow. with russia on last night i don't know if you got to see that episode but when we not. get to modern day mm -hmm. that will be one of the things that we should definitely include absolutely in there absolutely. so this is going to take us i think a few episodes to yeah. get through there but it was very very fascinating. And I was fascinated how far back you were able to go in your research. Well, <laughs> yay. Yay, college. <laughs> um, yeah, if um, if this is your first episode, I have a, um, I have my Bachelor of Arts in Comprehensive History. So this is, um, this is kind of my, my passion, my wheelhouse. Um, as our first episode is going to be the, it's the ancient world. And it's, it covers a period of like, uh, like 5,000 years. It's, it's insane, really. Um, it sounds very intimidating because it is. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I went through as much research as I could. I, I'm doing a lot of my research online. So I'm trying to verify that my sources are good and, you know, all that fun stuff. But, um, but anyway, I, I, uh, I hope that I am giving good information and I hope that, um, anybody who's listening learns 
something today about uh, about women and the things that they do in war, have done in war, at least as far as the ancient world goes. So I don't yep. know, I guess with that, I'll get right into it. Yep. Women in work and women, the service member is a form of work. So let's start. That's right. All right. Uh, so when we talk about women in war, there are multiple things to consider. There's the period in history, societal and or cultural norms, laws in effect, religious beliefs, and government structure, just to name a few. We're going to try to tackle this from a historical perspective, going just as far back in recorded history as we can, using the available incredible internet sources to talk about what women did, who they were, where they were, and if their contributions helped or hindered the war efforts. There are many, 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 many books that have been published on this subject if anyone wants to do a deeper dive. It's, there's just a lot of ground to cover. So uh, the ancient, ancient history from a per historical perspective roughly covers 5,000 years. This is when the earliest known writing, Sumerian cuneiform script, was discovered. This time period covers all continents that humans occupied from 3,000 BCE to 500 CE. And for the sake of this particular episode, I'm going to end, quote, the ancient world around the fall of the Roman Empire, though some of the women that uh, that we talk about will likely overlap each other in time. Uh, for me, it was just easier to organize the research this way. So this, the civilizations typically covered in the ancient world are the Sumerians, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Chinese, Mayan, and Incan. Now, okay. the Sumerians, the Mayans, the Incans, did not allow their women to participate in conflict. There's just no recorded history of women in battle doing anything. I, I'm, I'm not gonna say that women were sitting home hiding. They probably were defending their homes and their families too. There just is not a historical record of that. So that kind of, you know, that kind of takes out three civilizations right away. So skipping over Sumer, which is the earliest known civilization, we're going to go into Egypt. And in the Egyptian world, women and men were equal. They believed in a divine duality and keeping balance between all things. And this society recognized female violence. And by that, I mean it was not uncommon for women to deal with their enemies or engage in conflict. Other civilizations in the ancient world were scandalized by this freedom that Egyptian women had. So the first one we're going to talk about uh, is known as Queen Mother Ahotep I. As one of the oldest female warriors on record, she's credited with driving out the Hyksos people of the 15th dynasty who had ruled Egypt for 200 years. Queen Ahotep lived during the second intermediate period during which the Hyksos people were able to seize power. And this has been called the first foreign takeover of Egypt. Now, how did they seize power? There had been a series of impotent pharaohs, likely due to the practice of marrying their close family members, which caused a power vacuum. Ahotep was married to her brother, Sekenere Teo II, who actively worked to extend his reign past the Theban, the Theban region. He died probably on the battlefield, and then Ahotep took up the role of royal commander and led their troops to victory. Her son dedicated a stela, which was a slab of stone or wood that 
had inscriptions or artwork or something on it and, and these were displayed for for the world to see and on the stele he wrote she is the one who has accomplished the rights in taking care of egypt she has looked after her soldiers she has guarded her she has brought back her fugitives and collected together her deserters she has pacified upper egypt and expelled her rebels she, um, Ahotep, co-ruled Egypt with her mother as a regent after her husband's death because her son was just too young to rule. Um, her son, Kemose, only reigned for three years before he died, and then his brother, Amose, became the pharaoh, which ushered in the 18th dynasty, and they finally defeated and expelled the Hiskos people. And without Ahotep, the Egyptians would not have been ruled by other Egyptians. It would have remained under foreign rule. And I found her, I found that very fascinating that her husband dies and she just right into battle and she kicks them out of her country, at least in, in one of the first divisive battles of this war. She's the one that um, got it done. Yeah. So it's still a, it's still a male inheriting society. So you said that she ruled with her mother mm -hmm. in place of her son until he came of age. So it's still a, a male inheritance society, which I find interesting with the duality that she couldn't just. So there's still that little bit of element mm -hmm. of she still couldn't just be the person, you know, she couldn't. Right, yes. which I still find interesting. Yeah, her story is kind of like it's interesting and it's it's amazing for everything that she did that that one little element still couldn't couldn't happen. <laughs> um, so I find that fascinating. I also yeah. because you know I do you do your research and then I go back over mm -hmm. and and do mine and I I always try to find something that just sticks out to me that's a little bit interesting and i'm mm -hmm. more of a the social weird aspect of it you know this <laughs> so one of the things that i that stuck to me was you know she got honored quite a bit and one of one of her honors was the order of the fly which i don't know why the fly the fly it just bugged me no pun intended i was like come on the fly really well, i think of a fly as something that's annoying not to be in awe of but but i do Age. recognize speed yeah. agility that kind of stuff but uh any egyptian culture egyptian culture was very um they they did revere insects which is anathema to to most of us we have a, an aversion to insects but they they did like you said they they looked at the qualities that that insect had and they uh, they revered that and they honored that and uh, yeah right. I, I have that you said that the order of the fly was one of the highest military honors awarded so that's actually really cool that she got that I guess if you think about it, it kind of makes sense I mean you think about like a locust the plague of locust I mean mm -hmm. it's kind of yeah. all inspiring if you think that just this little bitty insect in a pack mind you like in a group, millions of them in a team can devastate 
just obliterate an entire society. Yeah, millions of, well, that's like snowflakes. They're little tiny things, but you get a million of them and you have a blizzard. So, what's that? Yeah. What's it? There's somewhere in the, is it in the United States? I think it's in the United States. I was just watching it where they're having a, is it a cricket problem? I think it's crickets. Oh, I don't but know. But they're like walking outside in their, their entire like house outside on their driveways. Everything is just covered in crickets. Or... I would, I would never leave the house. It's gross. Like I would never walk outside. It creeps me out. It was on the news. And you you know, I love my Lester Holt. He just, his voice. I love Lester Holt. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was on the nightly news. They were just covered, like covered. And, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking my immediate thought is the end of the world. It's the plague. I'm kidding. It's well, not, but it was the first oh, thought I mean, that came to my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, here it comes. No, not really. <laughs> but they can. <laughs> just, I'm just going to, it is, if, if you mm-hmm. give those little insects their, their power, they are devastating. Yeah, so absolutely. Absolutely. I guess I give the Egyptians that they, they recognized yeah. the, the power of that, but she, she's amazing. Yeah. And, and some of the other things, you know, the fact that she was personally leading these troops to battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was using weapons and she was on those chariots. And I just think that was amazing. And not just as a leader of troops. They, some of the stuff I read that she was also a religious leader. Um, and she played a part in that. She was also a patron of the arts. So she was just kind mm-hmm. of a well-rounded individual mm-hmm. throughout Egyptian yeah. society. Yeah. Yeah, and I noticed that you also pointed out about the um, the close marriages, the the brothers and the sisters <laughs> marrying, um, and 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 you're absolutely correct. Dina has in her notes that it, it decreases fertility, increased birth defects, genetic disorders, and increased chance of miscarriage. Um, it's taboo in most cultures. And you're, you're right, it, but amongst royal families, which we will find as we go throughout the series, intermarriage is um, very normal, very yes. normal. Queen Elizabeth II was married to her cousin. I, I think Philip was maybe a second cousin, mm-hmm. but it's still a fairly close marriage. The, um, the whole, um, the Habsburg dynasty, which we'll talk about, they um, they killed themselves out because of their intermarriage. And it's all about the belief that they had to keep their bloodline pure. Yeah. And But they didn't realize that by not diluting the gene pool, they were killing themselves. They were making their men sterile. They were making um, birth defects. Like um, King Tutankhamun uh, is, is believed to have had a... I believe a, a club foot amongst other um, birth defects, and that's absolutely a result of his of his parents being brothers and sisters, and their parents being brother and sister, and their parents being brother and sister, as the line goes. And uh, even, I mean, even down into Cleopatra's reign, 
she was married to her brothers as well because they even though they were not egyptian that the ptolemaic dynasty was macedonian and greek because they came from alexander the great but they kept that egyptian tradition alive of of close marriage between the pharaoh and a sister and uh it's it's uh it's gross for us to think about because it's it's not it's number one it's illegal (laughs) you know you can't do that it's illegal in the united states and i'm sure many countries it is illegal to um (laughs) participate in these acts and it's just it has shown just throughout history you can trace all of these problems with royal families back to the fact that they were inbreeding so well that was a, a good point that you made Maybe it's the the southerner in me. I don't know. Maybe it's because we're not that far removed from the cousins. I mean, it's gross, but that's not as gross to me as the brothers and sisters, with the exception of flowers in the attic. Because, I mean, come on, they were stuck in an attic and I don't know. That was the mom's fault, not theirs fault. Okay, maybe it was still gross, but whatever. Let's move on. Okay, next on our list. <laughs> next on our list. Um, I I talked a little bit about Hatshepsut. Um, she was the fifth Egyptian pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. She ruled from 1478 or 1479 BCE until her death in 1458 BCE. And one of the things that made her fascinating was that um, her successors tried to erase her from his, the historical record. And her reign is known mostly for being peaceful and for reestablishing trade routes that that intermediate period had disrupted. Um, But she did conduct a a successful military campaign in Nubia, and she also led campaigns in the Levant in Syria. Now, did these grow her realm? I don't know. I I didn't see anything in the record that said that, oh, as a result of her successes in these campaigns, Egypt annexed this territory and this territory. I don't know that. But um, I just found it fascinating that um, she seized power and did not call herself a queen. She called herself Pharaoh. So she took the male title to herself and said, I am the Pharaoh here. And uh, she was, during her reign, I believe she was well-liked, but it was her, her successor that hated her and uh, wanted to just nix her from the record. Like her, her statues were defaced. Her name was scratched out of tablets. Um, her tomb, I think, was, I think she was buried in a very nondescript tomb. Like, like he, like, he really tried to say she never existed. So don't ever speak of her again. But um, through, through archaeology and, and discovery and I'm sure oral legend and tradition, um, Hatshepsut has lived on, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. Go her. Um, he was not successful. Right. Yep. Yep. There, there's another, there's an example of a man trying to destroy a woman and failing. 
Um, <laughs> so I, I also talked a little bit about, about Cleopatra um, because she, she did lead a military campaign with Mark Antony against Octavian via his general Agrippa. And they ultimately lost, which led to um, Antony's um, suicide. And before, before Cleopatra uh, had this big romance with Mark Antony, she was romantically involved with Julius Caesar and even bore him a son that they called Caesarian. Uh, his actual name was Ptolemy the 15th, but um, they called him Little Caesar. They called him Caesarian. And Cleopatra was a very, very very smart woman. And she was also a very wealthy woman. She was uh, report reportedly the wealthiest woman in the world at that time. And she needed Caesar's protection in order to keep her hold on the throne. She never called herself Pharaoh. She did call herself queen and she would not share rule with anybody. She was also, she was married to her brother. Um, she there's I mean, if you if you look into Cleopatra's story, she had numerous siblings uh, disposed of, we'll say. Right. Um, she took rule from her brother. Like, I don't I don't know that. I, I mean, I'm sure he eventually ended up um, not alive, but I don't know that she ordered that it could have happened during battle because he, he was when he forced her out of rule he was kind of fighting rome for control of egypt so it's quite possible that he died in battle um i would have to look more into that i wasn't that interested in cleopatra's brother um so i i just didn't um so when when she wanted to take the throne back she needed caesar and so she allied herself to rome in order to uh, cement her control of egypt and uh, from what I understand, it, it, they, there was love there. Caesar was enamored of her and she bore him a son and he took her to Rome and she dressed as, as, the, god, as the goddess Isis that she, that, that she led worship of Isis. She would dress as Isis in Rome. He had statues commissioned of her that I think still stand in Rome or they're at least in museums somewhere. Um, so he, he was really, uh, he was in love with her. Was she in love with him? Probably not, but he right. needed her money. She needed his protection. It worked. So then when he was assassinated, she was left high and dry. And, uh, that's when she, uh, aligned herself with Mark Antony. And for, I mean, historical record says that they had a great love match, but Antony was married to Octavius's sister. So he couldn't actually be married to Cleopatra. I don't even think that was something she cared about or wanted. Um, but she did have children with him uh, after she had Caesarian and they revolted against Octavian and ultimately lost, like I said, and Antony um, took his own life. There is debate as to how Cleopatra met her end it is reported that she told Octavian that he would absolutely not parade her through Rome. That was just not going to happen. Uh, Cause that was a big thing for Roman emperors. When they won, they would right. parade their captives through Rome 
to show the might of the Roman Empire. And Cleopatra said she absolutely, that was not happening to her. So did she let a snake bite her? Did she drink poison? It, there, there's some debate. There's new debate surrounding those events. But the, the bottom line is that they were not successful. And Rome did win and Egypt did fall into Roman hands. Uh, now her children were definitely not as fortunate. Uh, fortunate's maybe not a great word to use here since we are talking about death and violence. Uh, but Cleopatra said she was not going, she was not going to be in Octavian's little parade, but her surviving children unfortunately were. Um, uh, except for Caesarian, who was likely killed outright because he was the son of Julius Caesar, which there he had a claim to Rome and Octavius couldn't, Octavian could not have that. So Caesarian was likely killed right away while the children she had with Mark Antony were um, part of his victory march through Rome. And then I'm sure their lives after that were either ended or they were slaves. Either way, it was not, it wasn't good for them. Right. So that's unfortunate. Um, but that's that's what happens, unfortunately, in war. There are winners and there are losers and and there are casualties. Okay. There are always casualties. Um, so uh, moving on from Egypt, which I know before there's, you there's, do. Yes, sorry. I'm so sorry. Before you do, curious it, when you yes. did your research, mm-hmm. and it, and if you don't know, no big deal. I didn't think about this when I was looking over because I didn't. I didn't. I'm gonna be very honest. I didn't put a whole lot into Cleopatra. Um, do you happen to know if the, the likeness that they, that Caesar did, Julius Caesar did of Cleopatra in Rome is actually considered a true likeness of her or is it a, it is a true likeness? Yes. uh, That's, that's an interesting thing. And, and I literally watched a documentary on this two days ago, um, the Romans were obsessed with realistically depicting people. Okay, so cool. any Roman depiction of Cleopatra is likely what she looked like. Uh, they had like even her the coins that she minted in Egypt that just show the outline of her profile. That's her real profile. Like she wasn't like make me look pretty. It wasn't like, you know, putting a Snapchat filter on or anything, you know, um, that's actually what she looked like. And there are reports that, because some people say, oh, she was this, this devastatingly beautiful woman. And she wasn't. No. She, she, was she pretty? Yeah, she probably was pretty, but she was not like, like Elizabeth Taylor's version of Cleopatra, where she's just this gorgeous femme fatale oozing this you know, oozing sex everywhere. Um, did did she know how to use her femininity and her womanly wiles to get what she needed? Absolutely, she did. And uh, I think the fact that she was confident, she knew who she was. She was the queen, she, which made her even more sexy, probably to to anyone who saw her. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a really, really good question. So yes, if you see a Roman depiction of Cleopatra, that is what she looked like. Um, I'll have to go, I'll have to go re look. And I think it's mm -hmm. always worth noting that our 
our idea and our premise of what is considered beautiful is yes. different than what is historically considered Definitely. yeah beautiful. the standard of beauty changes all the time and uh so she she probably you know she was called beautiful and 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 she she i mean she probably very well was i mean yeah was she helen of troy probably not but i mean she she was a typical greek woman she she looked like a greek woman she wasn't egyptian so you know she she didn't have you know the the nubian egyptian skin she had the olive tones of of a greek woman and uh there there's even some some speculation that she had red hair and that oh. she wasn't dark haired yeah um interesting there's I, I think there's a painting uh there was some kind of painting that i saw in that documentary that showed her with red hair so did she was it dyed red or was she a redhead I, I, th hmm. that's unknown but yeah, that's that's actually a really good question, and and I'm really glad that I had an answer for it. Does Helen of Troy truly look like we think Helen of Troy looked like? Anyways, well, let's you know, right? Did she exist? I mean, Troy existed, but did Helen? I don't know. Anyway, let's, let's <laughs> moving move on. on. <laughs> <laughs> moving on to Iran. Um, I'm sorry, Iran. I, I should say it properly. And please, please pardon pronunciations because these. Oh, I um, think you're doing amazing. I'm much yeah. better than I would. I I have things written out phonetically so that I I'm trying to do justice to the to the languages that I do not speak. But yes, um, Iran. Well, technically, this is not considered part of the Sumerian civilization. The Iranian city of Susa was founded around the same time as the ancient Sumerian city of Uruk. Now, in the sixth century BCE, a descendant of the Susa. Queen Tomyris took on the Persian king Cyrus the Great and defeated him. Like she, she, yeah, it's her story is is brutal. Uh, she was a warrior queen and she was known for her fierceness. She ruled the Masagate, which were a nomadic people who were known for horsemanship. Her lands were north of Persia and east of the Caspian Sea. So Cyrus had just conquered the Babylonians and he turned his focus north towards Tomyris' kingdom. And he asked her to marry him because he was attempting the diplomatic approach to absorb her kingdom. And she saw right through that and said, no. <laughs> uh, she sent his army a message. His army was encamped on her borders. She sent them a message, leave or we will attack you in three days. And Cyrus was not worried about this at all. He had 200,000 men with him. And the Masagate were, were vastly outnumbered. It was like unimaginable. And it should have been the, mo the, the easiest victory ever. So he chose to use trickery. And he had his soldiers pretend to retreat. Like, oh, no, we're scared. We're going to run away. But in doing so, they left all of their stuff behind including casks and casks of wine and that's important because the masagate were not wine drinkers they were milk drinkers basically they 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 did not drink wine so if you can imagine these soldiers showing up and there's wine everywhere and hey we scared the heck out of this huge army let's celebrate so they start drinking the wine and they have no tolerance for it like you know 
people, you know, in, in the area, in that part of the world that, that grew up on wine have a tolerance for it. You know, they know right. how to drink it. They know how to tolerate it. Well, the Massagate did not. So they got hammered, like very, very, very drunk according. And this is according to the Greek historian Herodotus, who says that, that these men got really, really drunk. And at that point, Cyrus's army moved in and captured most of the soldiers, including Tomyris's son, Spargapeces. And Spargapeces was very embarrassed by this capture. So he begged Cyrus to let him end his own life. And Tomyris held Cyrus responsible for her son's death, and she mm. swore vengeance. Now, uh, in the book Judith by Deborah Levine Guerra, Tamiris sent Cyrus another message, and the message said, You bloodthirsty Cyrus, pride not yourself on this poor success. It was the grape juice, which when you drink it makes you so mad. It was this poison by which you ensnared my child and so overcame him, not in fair open fight. Restore my son to me, Tamiris demanded. Refuse, and I swear by the sun, the sovereign lord of the Massagate, bloodthirsty as you are, I will give you your fill of blood. So she was angry, to say the least. She was sad. She lost her son. She was grieving, and she wanted revenge. And again, Cyrus did not take this seriously because the Persians still outnumbered them. So he was thinking, well, what can she actually do? Nothing. And Herodotus says that the battle that followed was the fiercest battle between non-Greeks, which is for the, the Greeks were kind of self-centered. And so for them to take notice of things going on outside of their world is kind of a big right. deal. So for him to be like, this was a battle. <laughs> it was <laughs> definitely a battle. So, um, Tomyris raised her armies and she attacked Persia and her absolute desire for avenging the death of her son gave these armies an edge that the Persians just did not anticipate. Cyrus was killed during this battle and Tomyris gave orders for his body to be recovered. And when it was delivered to her, she cut off his head, put it into a vat filled with human blood. And as the story is told, she said, I live and have conquered you in fight, and yet by you I am ruined, for you took my son with guile. Thus I make good my threat and give you your fill of blood. So yeah, that is extremely brutal. And and she recognizes that yeah, she has her revenge, but it does not bring her son back. She still lost her son. And it's, again, it's war. There are casualties and it's devastating and it's sad. And, yeah. and this is a, a queen, a warrior, and a mother who is victorious yet not victorious because of her great loss. So she's my heart broke. Yeah, my heart broke reading reading about her. I was just uh it just it's I, I any I mean any mother who has a child in the service that has I mean I'm sure that's your greatest fear is that your child is going to be harmed yeah doing their dirty so um, I don't know I was curious when I when I read 
read this, what she would have been viewed at at this time. You know, was she feared? Was she considered unnatural? You know, monstrous? You know, women that portray this kind of strength, Mm -hmm. you know, often, even now, not Mm -hmm. saying that anybody that cuts off heads and stuff aren't considered brutal, whether male or female. Mm -hmm. Um, But just the underlying elements of war in a, in a male, it's kind of celebrated as a strength, but for a woman, it's, it's dangerous. It's unbecoming to demonstrate those kinds of elements. Even now it would be considered that. So I'm, I'm curious back then. I'm sure maybe with her own people, maybe they, they relevant, you know, reveled her, but I'm I'm Mm -hmm. sure there was a fear an element there i mean i'm not sure i didn't live back then but it just seems like she would have been and i'm not I'm, i can't say the word i'm not i you know me i can't i skip an anomaly words. thank you an abomination like she, she, and, um, yeah like yeah people would have thought she was strange evil or strange or well out of this world or so like, i think see that that's one of the things when um when you study history is that you have to look at it through the lens of the people that lived it, which is difficult for for you and I because we don't live in that world, right? So, so when you think about it, it's it's going back to um, to what I said in the beginning. Um, you have to like look, view the cultural norms, the laws, stuff like that. Now, she was the queen, and as the queen of, of these people, it was up to her to protect them. And keep them safe and keep her borders safe and so i think um she was seen as a warrior and as fierce and so there was fear of her uh, i don't know that her own people were afraid of her um like you said you know her her people are probably like proud of her like yep that's our queen you know come come get some mess with her see what happens <laughs> you know and uh but the outside world uh it's funny because I, I think even cultures that don't accept women as being equal still could understand other civilizations that had female rulers. Uh, like I'm sh- like Rome dealt with queens, even though they didn't think that women should be in any kind of power position. They the emperors dealt with queens. Um, so I, I think that they, you know, outside of their own culture, it was, well, that's who rules them. That's how that is. And yeah, so I, can I, I see do that. I can see the dealt with, but I mm-hmm. still feel like there would, I just wonder if the respect. I, I think she, she probably earned respect. <laughs> right. Um, I, I would think, I, I mean, like we're talking, I, I would say if um, if Cyrus had survived, he would have had a healthy respect for her because yeah. she, you know, decimated his army with her, you know, smaller army, just the on the force of her own rage. I think he just would have had a Cyrus would have maybe her. given more respect to begin with. Ah, right. Well, I, I think he didn't because. You know, he, like, like Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Roman emperors, they just saw land and, and they just saw land to be conquered. Yeah. It didn't matter As who was, was already living right. there. Yeah, it didn't matter who was already living there. It was, it was for the glory of their empire. They could do whatever they wanted. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah. We can we can go back and forth and back and forth. But no, we we got time, so I'll I'll move on. But it's fascinating. It's just it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, Okay. So now we're gonna move on from Iran, and we're gonna talk about Greece. And Greece in the ancient world was a collection of city states, and they fought each other all the time. Like Greece was not a united place. It was Athens and Sparta and um, Caria and and you know, it's just, they were all their own little countries and they hated each other, basically. Um, they were constantly in battle. So, but the the Greek world was a world that did not, they did not view women as equal. They did not um, allow women into battle or conflict. Um, so why are we talking about them? And it's because there are, are a few women that bucked that against that norm and they had power and they used it. Um, so in, in my notes, you know, I have that, that Sparta and Athens are, are two big Greek city states that everybody knows that most people learn about in history and stuff like that. Um, so Sparta is different in the fact that they do give their women more freedom. They do give their women a little more equality. They train their women alongside their men and it's, for it's funny they do it because their belief is that strong parents produce strong children and spartan women were known to kind of um crap on the rest of the greek world by you know saying that there no no other woman births a warrior but a spartan woman so <laughs> Yeah. So Athenian women, your, your kids aren't warriors. Your sons aren't men. (laughs) The only men come from Sparta, you know, so they are very, it's, it's, it brings to mind school spirit, you know, like, yeah, you know, um, so they, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to see that viewpoint. Uh, so when there was war, which there always was, Spartan women were left behind to run the government, to run businesses, run the farms, you know, train the children, uh, keep the homes. Spartan women did all of that. And they did it out in the open. They were allowed to own land. They were allowed to own businesses. And nowhere else in the Greek world was that even a thing. So Mm -hmm. I found that very, very interesting. Um, So I'm going to start by talking about Artemisia I of Caria. And she was the queen of Heliconarsis, and that's where Herodotus, the historian, was from. And Artemisia is known for being an ally of Xerxes I of Persia during the second Persian invasion of Greece. So her most famous battle was the Battle of Salamis in September of 480 BCE. She personally led the forces of Helicarnassus, Kos, Nasiros, and Kalindos. She supplied five of her own ships. And even though they lost this battle, she was a very fierce leader and she was held in great esteem by Xerxes. And this battle was very, very important because it was fought by an alliance of Greek city-states. So they finally put aside their own little squabbles and came together to defeat the Persian invasion. Uh, Their victory was a turning point in the Greco-Persian Wars, which effectively made the whole of Greece safe from further invasion by foreign powers. 
um, the Persians' loss was absolutely stunning because they were seen as an unstoppable force. Um, Artemisia, in fact, was the only one who advised Xerxes against meeting the Greeks in a naval battle because she said on land, the Persians are unmatched, but at sea, you don't want to do that. And he appreciated that advice. He was, uh, you know, he was really like happy to have had that advice, but every other one of his advisors were saying, no, we got to hit him hard, hit him by sea. So he did. And then they lost. Um, She was, uh, she was interesting because, you know, she was seen as a pirate and a traitor because she's a Greek woman on the Persian side. And she would, during this battle, uh, she would routinely lower the Persian colors on her flags and raise Greek ones so that the Greeks wouldn't attack her ships or or capture her. And she was wanted for, uh, like, there was was a bounty on her for 10,000 drachmae. And the Greeks were absolutely furious that she was allied to Xerxes. And they were even more furious that she was a woman and she was doing this. So uh, opinions about her varied, obviously. Um, Herodotus was a big fan, but that's probably because he was from Halicarnassus too. And uh, like I said, uh, the other Greeks just viewed her as a traitor. And she was, to them, she was disgusting. She was worthless and they did not enjoy her at all. Um, but she was not killed or captured by, by the Greeks in, in this battle at all. In fact, her death came much later when she, it's a, alleged that she jumped off of a rock that was supposed to cure jumpers from the passion of love. So apparently she was in love with somebody who did not reciprocate. And so she jumped off this rock and bye-bye Artemisia. So she was, uh, she's interesting to me that she, uh, she, she looked out for her own interest and she thought that it was better to be on the side of Persia, the unstoppable force than to be subjugated by Persia as, yeah. as a Greek woman. So yeah, I thought that was interesting for her. I definitely had mixed feelings mm-hmm. for her. Um, it was all a bit underhanded, the lowering oh, of the flag and the raising, Absolutely. but so smart. It was, like it was super, very smart, super smart. Mm-hmm. And and there is um, there is another version of the the reason that she jumped, where they say mm-hmm. it was a, a a way of escaping persecution, or mm-hmm. um, there was even that it was a form of uh, political protest. So there there's no telling um, why she actually jumped, or if she actually jumped, or what that is mm-hmm. but no matter what there's no denying that she was super intelligent oh yeah Su- she, she super was. intelligent politically savvy uh she's someone that would probably do well in american politics she probably would <laughs> she she really knew she knew how to play both sides and she's yeah. super well <laughs> yeah she was uh she was she was really really smart and yeah i mean yeah, it's it's yeah. But was but was it ethical? Mm. Oh, absolutely not. But yeah. it's war. It's but war. It is war. So what's yeah. there there are no rules in war. I mean there's I mean there are rules of war, I guess. And there, you know, are war crimes, but I mean it's it's war. It's kill or be killed basically. But she was smart. So she was. She, she was, she was really smart. smart. 
Yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed reading about her. I really did. Um, so I, I think um, I, I want to touch briefly on the Amazons because we are talking about ancient Greece. And um, according to Greek mythology, the Amazons were a tribe of warrior women. And some of them, according to mythology, fought in the Trojan War. So as of now today, the Amazons are still mythological. Uh, but there is new archaeology archaeological evidence that is emerging that says that there actually were warrior women that rode horses and fought battles during the time that the Greeks were telling these stories of these Amazons. And they, the Greeks believe that they hailed from a vast Eastern territory called Scythia. And the new research puts this in Southern Siberia, which would be the area that the Greeks said that the Amazons came from. And there have been tombs discovered there with female bones that were buried with weaponry and were wearing pants. So hmm. it's it's kind of interesting to see that that uh, we're currently living in a time where the myth of the Amazons may be proven to be truth, like they may have actually existed. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I wanted to put that in there. Um, that would be cool. Yeah, and then uh, so I'm I'm going to move on and talk about Queen Gorgo of Sparta. And she was the daughter of Spartan King Cleomenes, and she was married to her father's half-brother, Leonides, again with the intermarriage between family members, which is a thing that they did. Um, so her <laughs> husband, Leonides, became king in 490 BCE, and Spartan women were taught sports such as running, discus and javelin throwing, and wrestling. The Spartans believe women should be as physically strong as the men because two strong parents produce strong children. Um, now, Spartan women did not participate in battle. They, like I said earlier, they ran the businesses, they ran the farms, they, you know, kept the government moving, um, that kind of thing. So Gorgo was, at the time uh, Gorgo was queen, her husband uh, was was getting ready to fight Xerxes I. So this is around the same time as Artemisia. So these two women are overlapping. Um, now, she didn't take part in any of the battle, but what she did was perform an invaluable service to the Spartans by solving a secret message. So they were sent a wooden tablet by a man named uh, Demaratus, who apparently was exiled to Persia, or he, he was just exiled from Sparta and he ended up in, in Persia. Um, he sends this tablet that is a warning to the, to the Spartan soldiers, basically, and he, he etched it on wood and covered it with wax. So the Spartans get this tablet and they know who it's from, but it's blank as far as they're concerned there's nothing on it they don't know what they what to do with it and so gorgo says hey how about you clean off the wax <laughs> so that's what they did <laughs> so they they get the wax off the tablet they find this warning and it's saying that xerxes is going to invade you guys better get ready and uh so they then pass the information on to the athenian leaders which spread outward to all the other city states so this allowed the Greeks to get ready for war. So if Gorgo had not made her suggestion, hey, get the wax off the tablet, uh, the Greeks may have been uh, defeated. And, and that whole 
part of the, the world's, that, the whole part of history could be very different because Xerxes could have been victorious instead of getting crushed on the sea. Uh, so I thought that was extremely interesting. Uh, now, Gorgo has been described by the author David Kahn in his book, The Codebreakers, as one of the first female cryptanalysts whose name has been recorded. So that is really interesting too. So she did not participate in war or in conflict, but she was one of, I guess, the, one of the very first intelligence officers that we, we could call her because she, you know, she figured out like, well, he wouldn't just send a blank tablet. There's gotta be something. And so, you know, she's um, super, yeah, just super fascinating. Um, I also, when I was researching this and looking at it, that, um, and I'm going to butcher his name, the historian, uh, Plutarch, is that what you, what you said his name was Plutarch? Mm -hmm. Um, he claims that the clean the queen actually cleaned off the wax herself by licking it off with her tongue. Now, uh. <laughs> I personally, I personally think that this is just a very male thing to say mm-hmm. that the woman did. I don't know that I truly buy that the queen said, "Oh, look, there's wax." Hmm, clean it off. Oh, let, let me, me do it. that for you. I'm just going to lick that off. No, yeah. I think that's a male yeah. historian who has some fantasies. I'm just not going to lie. That <laughs> just seems like a very male thing to say. I just don't I, see this queen going, oh, honey, let me lick it for you. Yeah, Come on, watch. really? Do you buy Look that? What I can do, do you really think that that's what happened? No. Okay. No, probably not. I, I, and I think you're right. And, and I think, too, that a lot of... Um, a lot of these these histories that these historians, you know, wrote about and stuff, they, they were taking things that were fact, but they were also trying to make it interesting for people to hear about. So, yeah, I mean, that's it's it's like you said, that's such a it's a male fantasy. Well, there's like, you know, we, we could talk about how virtually everything in the world is created for the male gaze. <laughs> You know, you know, if and Hollywood makes a movie out of this, of the queen's licking the wax, you yeah. know, that's happening, right? Well, Hollywood did make a movie out of it. It was called 300. Although did I don't the queen know that Gorgo, lick, wait, I don't know that lick, I don't even, I honestly, I don't even know that they talked about Gorgo's contribution to that, how they got okay. the message on the tablet and, and figured stuff out. They probably just glossed right over that, you know, cause it's, you know, we were too interested in seeing, What's what's his what's his name? Was it Gerard Butler in that movie? Just seeing him. I in don't his, know. I never. That's not in his uh, of, in his hot. That's not my outfit. type of movie. So I didn't I didn't watch it. I'm gonna <laughs> oh, it's be, a great admit, movie. I didn't watch it. I'll admit it. I didn't okay. watch it. So it's it's okay. I mean, it's really it's really good. <laughs> I have um, no clue. I know there's false. a bunch of half-dressed men in it. That's that's oh, yeah. about all I about all Definitely. I know of it. So it wouldn't surprise me if they had the queen mm-hmm. licking the wax in it. Yeah, but I, I think that that was just a, just a, a little salacious detail to get people interested <laughs> in the story. Um, but I'm sure she probably was like, you know, maybe she took, she might have taken the tablet and said, can I see that? And then scratched it off with a fingernail or or something and said, oh, look, there's something written underneath, or you know. Licked your thumb. You know how your mom used yeah. to do that? Uh, lick yep. your thumb mm-hmm. and, and wipe it? Yeah. Right. She could but have done that I just that can't too. imagine her just like, oh, yum. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, gross. That's, <laughs> okay. no. Ugh. Let's move on. <laughs> <Ugh>. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. So, uh, so next up on my Greek list here is Aspasia of Miletus. And she's best known for being the consort of Pericles of Athens. Pericles was the leader in Athens. He wasn't the king, but he was, uh, I, I mean, I guess we could say he was the president of Athens. Um, she did not fight in any battle, but she did pressure him to, inter to intervene in a, in a dispute between Samos and Miletus. And when the Samos refused to stop their attacks on Miletus, Pericles took military action, which started the Samian War in 440 BCE. The takeaway from this war is that Athens drove the Sumerian oligarchs out of Miletus and then set up a democratic government like their own in Athens. And this, that's a very oversimplified explanation. There were definitely other factors in the Samian War. There was involvement from Persia. There was uh, power vacuums, back and forth power struggles. Ultimately, Athens wins here. And that's another example of a woman who maybe wasn't in war, but she had something to do with the war. Um, like Gorgo, you know, used her intelligence to, to figure out, hey, there's a message here. And Aspasia used her connection to the, the Athenian leader to get people to get out of her home, her homeland. Uh, so, so she, you know, she, she may have, I don't know, technically, not technically, she somehow started this war. Uh, so I, I found that very interesting because um, there are different roles that, that people play in war. There are spies, there are um, people that just stay home and, and keep the country running while, you know, the, the, while men are off, you know, fighting. And, and so it, it's just highlighting that women don't have to be on horseback charging into battle to have significant uh, impact on conflict and war. Well, she was part of the, yeah. she's part of the political discussions and all the debates yes. in Athens. Yes. And it's interesting how when I, th I thought when I was doing the research for her, that one of the, one of the things that popped up is she was considered to have loose morals and mm -hmm. that she was a whore and she was accused of this, but it was never shown in any of the history or anything that she was a prostitute, but this is pretty common that mm -hmm. when a woman at that time was in those discussions and when she was in discussions that where she was not wanted or her input was not wanted, that that was the go-to to call right. her that, to say Always. that she was a woman of loose morals and that kind of stuff. So here she was part of all those discussions and having a huge impact in those discussions. So the answer to that was not to debate her intellectually. Mm -hmm. It was to, to destroy she was a her whore. character. Yep. yep. It she's was to, to try to, yep. She doesn't matter. She's a whore. So, yeah. Right. Yep. That's, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Because their belief is that women don't have the intellectual capacity that men have. All women have is what's between their legs. And that's what influences men to do things. Like it, yep. it couldn't be because she had her own political ideals and goals and, you know, she got him to do it. Because exactly. of elsewise. Exactly. Yep. yep. That's you're exactly Anyways. right. Um, and I, I do, I have to um, <clears throat> just a special note that I wrote about ancient Greece. I, I have that society, their society did not typically allow women to do much outside of the home. So a highborn woman might be educated, 
but outside of Sparta, women were not allowed to own land or businesses. They absolutely did not participate in war, and women that did, like Artemisia of Caria, were widely condemned. Yet, in an interesting juxtaposition, Greek men were obsessed with the idea of warrior women. And this is evidenced by their tales of the Amazons and their depictions of them in art and on pottery and household items. And it's also interesting that in a culture that did not want women to participate in war, they worshipped goddesses of war, Athena and Enyo. So they really liked the idea of warrior women, but they absolutely did not want to allow for the reality of a warrior woman. So I, I thought interesting. that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I really was interested by that. Um, There's some psychology there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay. So, so we move on from Greece. Logically, what we have left is Rome. And like Greece, Rome did not allow women freedom over their own lives. So women in these societies lived at the whims and the wills of their fathers, their brothers, their uncles, and then their husbands. And they were heavily restricted to home activity. Now, they did allow women to fight as gladiators, which I kind of found interesting, too. Um, a slave could be entered into the arena by their owner. Uh, freeborn women could choose to become fighters, but only a certain type of woman. A highborn woman or feminine were not allowed or drawn to the arena. Now, mulieres, which were low-class women, or ludia, which were female performers, were attracted to gladiator life because they could win fame and fortune there. So some women may have turned to this choice uh, in order to pay debt or in order to forge some kind of independence for themselves without turning to prostitution because prostitution was another way that women could um, establish some kind of independence. But, right. you know, like, like we just said, you know, you call a woman an, a whore and it completely negates her comp entirely. So, but a woman gladiator, well, she's, you know, she's in the ring kicking butt and making money. So she's okay. So it's, it's just, I, I found that interesting about, about both Rome and Greece. Uh, so I have too, that there were, there weren't any Roman women that fought in battle that I could find, but there were women that fought against the Romans. So I'm going to talk about those women. And then I have something about Cleopatra, but we, we already talked about her pretty much. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and skip over her. And we're going to talk about Amanarius the Brave. And Rome's defeat of Cleopatra brought the fall of the Ptolemaic dynasty. So that led Rome south to conquer the Sudan. And there they faced the one-eyed warrior queen, Amanarius. I mean, how she's already pretty intimidating. She's one-eyed and a warrior queen. Like I would be yes. a little concerned going up against her. Um, so she decided she was going to attack first. She was not waiting for Rome to come knocking on her door. She was going to them. So the, the imperial governor of Rome was focused on Arabia and Aminoreus was able to lead her forces into the heart of Egypt, where she seized several Roman outposts in two Roman cities. She retreated back to the Kush with both captives and loot. The Roman Empire did strike back, and that's just a little Star Wars joke there. Um, they, re <laughs> they, they retook their cities, and then they advanced and burned her capital city. But Aminoreus uh, would not accept defeat, and she led guerrilla warfare against the Romans for five years 
until they sued for peace. And she only accepted when they offered her terms that were acceptable and favorable to the Kush. So that I thought was absolutely amazing. Like she was so fierce and, and caused so much of a problem that they were begging her to leave them alone. And I just, I, I loved that. I just love that. She was probably my favorite story of the ones that we read. I have like super notes on her and one of my mm-hmm. I have on here what an amazing woman why is there not a movie about her question mark question mark question mark question mark <laughs> um she just like seriously mm-hmm. everything that yeah. I read she just she sounds amazing and you know you have to mm-hmm. wonder is she was she the exception I mean she seems like the exception not the historical norm especially mm-hmm. in Sudan uh, Sudan 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 I don't know. Um, But when you think about what's happening modern day to women in Sudan or Sudan, you think she would be the exception. You know, from Mm -hmm. what I read for the podcast, it seems even then it was still more of where you were born in the hierarchy um, that affected what rights she had. But you still didn't have a whole lot of rights back then. So she was this huge exception to the rule and what she did. And the years that it took and the amazing, I mean, seriously, why isn't there a Hollywood movie made about this woman? She should be just like little girls should be running around in eye patches. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. She's, yeah, she was amazing. And I I like how you have that. um, uh, Amenoreus was part of a long line of warrior queens in the kingdom of Kush. Her mother, her grandmother, also both known for their military prowess and leadership. Like that's, I, like it's strong women raising strong women. And I love yeah. that. I love that. And it's, um, it's sad to see the decline in um, the rights that women have in certain areas of the world. Um, whereas before certain governmental regimes took place, took over, took place, women were, you know, maybe not equal to men, but they had their own voices and they were allowed to do things. And now it's, it depends on who's in power. It just really just, depends on who's in power with what you're allowed to do. So, I just wish we knew sad. more of these stories. I wish oh my gosh, I knew more of these stories. I, I wish that these were things that we were taught in, in high school, like high school history is so boring. If, if I was taught any of the stuff in high school history, I would have liked it a lot more. Like and people ask me all the time, why, did you major in history? That is so boring. Like all you do is memorize dates and in high school. Yeah. That, that is all. They just give you timelines and make you memorize dates. And the only, college, the only way, I, yeah, no, the only way I yeah. made it through was you and I having sort mm-hmm. of, you know, just a little bit of competition and then, Oh, what's his name yelling sex every once in a while just to wake right. us up. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, you, you get to college and study history and it's completely different. Like it's, you know, these are the events that took place and who made it happen. Who were the people behind these events? Why, what was their motivation? What was happening in their world that made this happen? And that made it so much more interesting to me because I didn't have to think about, you know, the battle of 1812. I could think about, you know, the, the first lady, you know, having a party in the white house up until the the day the british came to burn the white house down and then she made all the party goers collect all of the important artwork out of the white house and and run away with it 
Like that's the cool stuff that you learn in college versus high school, you know? So that's anyway, why that's, we are doing this podcast. That's why we're doing this podcast. Yes. For little things yes. like that. All um, right. No. Who's next? Okay. Next is Boudica, a Celtic queen. And she is considered a British national heroine. And uh, her husband, uh, Prestagus, ruled independently as a Roman ally. Now, when he died, he willed his kingdom to two of his daughters and also the Roman emperor. So he, it was to be split three ways. Nero, who was the emperor at the time, ignored the will and annexed the kingdom, took his property. Now, when Queen Boudicca protested this, she was flogged. And that's a brutal kind of punishment. And it's a very public punishment, which was meant to bring her low. Um, so not only did that happen to her, but her daughters were raped and she was forced to watch that happen. So she was mad, mad, like, uh, to my, like Queen Tamiris mad at that point. So in 60 or 61 of the current era, Boudicca led the Iceni and other British tribes in a revolt against the Roman Empire. And her rampage led to the destruction of uh, Camaldunum, Londinium, and uh, Verulamium. So that's three Roman cities that she just completely obliterated. They were gone. Uh, Boudicca and her followers killed approximately 80,000 Romans and other Britons. Her army vastly outnumbered the Roman legions. And we're talking, she had 230,000 men to 10,000 Roman soldiers. But a very lucky choice by the general Suetonius in battlefield allowed the Romans to absolutely crush the Iceni army. And that's to me was insane. Um, the battlefield he chose um, made it impossible for him to have any enemies at his back. And it was kind of a bottlenecked area. So they could only come in from one area. And it was right. so narrow that they couldn't turn around and leave. And so as the Iceni's are coming into what they think is going to be a, just an absolute slaughter, they're just getting picked off one by one by the, by the Roman legion. And they anticipating this huge victory brought their families. They brought other uh, witnesses, other like revelers to come, Hey, we're going to have a, we're going to party after this is over. So everybody come with us. So they had so many wagons and carts that they couldn't even escape. They'd cut off their own escape route by bringing all these people to witness what they thought was going to be their victory. And it ended up being an absolute, uh, just a, a, an absolute slaughter on the Roman side, which was insane to me, insane. So uh, Boudicca does not win her battle. And it is, there's debate as to how she, uh, she has to how she died. So she either killed herself with poison or she was wounded in battle and died in battle. So like in my notes, I, I said that, you know, she may have lost in the end, but she took 80,000 of them with her which is right. absolutely crazy to me. Insane. So yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed her story too. And I, I thought it was awful what, what they did to her. And uh, yeah, it was, it was not, uh, not pretty, not pretty at all. The battle I wasn't as familiar with her story. I was just because of Shakespeare and Tennyson mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. Cause she's well represented in literature. So yeah. Cause the Brits love her. Yeah, the Brits do love, love her. her. 
lover, lover. Um, so I think, cause I, I, we still have, um, a couple more mm-hmm. women that, uh, went up against Rome and then we have all of China to talk about. So I think okay. that's going to be a, a second, uh, that that's going to be our part two is we're going to pick up with the rest of the, um, the, the Roman agitators and then we'll end with China. And, okay. Because uh, this is, we're over an hour now, and I know that that you have a meeting coming up that I you do. need to get to. So, uh, so we're going to go ahead and end there. <laughs> but <laughs> I, this was a, this was really interesting, and uh, it was a lot of fun doing this research. So I'm, I, I, I really, really like this. Um, this is going to be a good topic, and it's definitely going to take us a few episodes to get through. So, oh, definitely, and I, I hope everybody sticks with us because we still have some craziness to come, especially when oh, we yes. get to China. And oh yes, um, there are some some female generals with China that are just just some great stuff to come on the second part of yep. Um, yep. ancient women, and then we'll move on from there. And I'm excited to see what the next. The next group yes yes so. it's, it's yep it's going to be the early middle ages that we'll get into Work, but working women and then if you yes. know if you have suggestions for what we do after women in war let us know you know yes, working women please. encompasses all different all different topics yep. so all different topics um yeah. you can you can reach out to us at uh, working girls the number one at outlook.com and uh so we will pick up with this another time all right nikki all right thanks dina have a good meeting thanks all right bye bye thank you for joining us on working girls today if you know of a working girl we need to be discussing that society has ignored that needs to be highlighted shoot us a message our contact information is in the notes don't let women fall to the side of history anymore no more sitting pretty and quiet please listen download subscribe and share us with your friends check out the episode notes and website for further information on today's topic see you next time